is immature, or not immature, immune to is what I meant to say, immune to, maybe God's trying to tell me something, I don't know. No one's immune to, to greed, am I right? I mean, no one's immune to greed, and, and even ministers of the gospel. And I'm sure you've heard this story. I think it made the news over in Princeton a while back. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but it's a, about a fellow who came to the Baptist church, and he asked to see the pastor, and he seemed very troubled, so the secretary ushered him straightway into the preacher's office because this man was obviously distraught. He was obviously broken. He needed help. And he said, well, sir, what, what, what's, what's wrong? How can we, how can this body be of service to you? And the fellow said, preacher, my dog's done died. And I want a Christian burial for him. And the preacher said, well, sir, I'm very sorry to hear that your dog has passed, but, but we don't do Baptist funerals uh, for, for dogs. And so what I would encourage you to do is maybe go see the Episcopalian church down the street. They might do things like that. I don't know, but you might check with them. I, I'm really not sure how to direct you, and I'm sorry that we can't help you. And the fellow stood up and said, I'm so sorry that you, you can't, can't do my dog's funeral. But I understand. I'll go try that other church. But, but Pastor, if you could help me in some kind of way. I, I, I'm not quite sure what would be appropriate. You know, if they agree to do it for me, what would be like an appropriate memorial, like an appropriate gift? Because I was thinking like, I was thinking like $10,000 maybe. Would that be appropriate? And the preacher gulped and he said, well, wait a minute. You didn't tell me your dog was a Southern Baptist. <laughs> right? And there's another one. There's a really rich old skin flint. He's declining in his health, and he'd never really been serious about eternal life, his eternal soul, and he was troubled because he'd been diagnosed with a, with a fatal illness, and he went to see the local pastor to ask him what he could do to, to square his account with God because he was a businessman, and he thought in dollars and cents, and I want to square my account with God. And he said, Preacher, I know, I know that I'm not in the right place because I've never given God a minute of my time. I've never given God a, a single dime of my fortune, uh, what, what can I do? And the pastor looked at him kind of smugly and said, well, finally, you're, you're thinking about your eternity, huh? I see. And the convicted old fellow said, yes, sir. And, and, and he said, I, I, I'm desperate. I don't know what to do. He said, but how, how about this? How about, preacher, if I gave this church every cent I've got, would that do it? If I gave you every dime of my fortune, would that guarantee that I would go to heaven when I die? And the preacher rubbed his chin and said, well, it's worth a try. Yeah, worth a try. That's sad, right? Put that word back up for me, greed. The word greed. I think everyone's uncomfortable today because you kind of know where this is going because this is really personal. When we start talking about stewardship and finances and giving, everybody gets super uncomfortable. And that's probably a sign that it's something that we need to examine according to the Word of God. You know, greed, this word, this simple word, is the driving force behind our culture. It's the driving force behind our American economy because we want stuff. We want our stuff. 
we want other people's stuff. And then when we get so much stuff, we have to go and rent those storage units to store all of our stuff. And we, we have this insatiable desire to own things and to possess more things. And this, this need to possess is what drives our economy. It's actually what keeps everything going. Our economy is built upon a house of cards where people must go into debt in order to get stuff. And if we didn't do that, the whole house of cards would fall apart. We each possess our own ideas regarding money and economy. We have our own unique ideas about what we truly value and what really matters in our lives. Most of the time, whether we will admit it or not, we inherit those values from the people who raised us. Most of us tend to follow, at least in in some fashion, the spending habits and the owning habits of our parents and their parents before them. This is a generational issue, and that, that cycle of family economy is a cycle that is so very difficult to break, but, but most of the time, it seems, in our world today, our personal values tend to differ from God's values when it comes to this matter of stewardship and economy. We just look, we just look at things differently from the way God does in our personal economies, often very quite dramatically from, from God's economy. You know, last week, as, as we were leaving, I had well, I'll call him out. It was George. I had George Southwick. Wave, George. George sitting over here by the wall. You talked to me after church last week, right, George? Do you remember that? Because I remember it. And what George talked to me about, he came up waving his bulletin at me. And, and, and his big concern was that little budget deficit that we have, you know. And he's like, we need to talk about this. And, and I've never been reactionary. I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. I remember, I remember sitting in churches and, and hearing those sermons, you know, when money got short and then preachers got mad and the deacons are fuming and, and they're passing the plates nine times and, and it gets kind of little, you know, it gets a little bit worldly. And I don't want to be reactionary, but, you know, I was already searching for where we were going to go next, and, and I kind of looked at things, I thought, you know, it has been a long time. It's been a long time since we've addressed these matters, and, and we probably need to again. So, George, I just kind of looked at that as kind of a little nudge from the Lord when you spoke to me last week, because I, kind of, I was kind of on a little breaking point. I didn't quite know where to go. And I thought, this is something that we do need to look at. So for the next three Sundays, just a really a brief series. It's a stewardship refresher is what I want to call it. And, and, and I'm calling it Guide to Giving. And I believe that it is needed. It's a reminder that we need because there are things that we, there are these things that are so important in our lives that if we don't pay attention to them, what we do is we let other things take over we let other things get in the way. We get, let other things interrupt. What we know is right is saying, I look at my own life. I look at my own life. Last year, I was in, I was in a place of, of, you know, taking really good care of my body. And I lost weight, you know, and I was walking every day. And all it took was a little bit of pattern of getting off my pattern. And my body found me again. My pounds that I lost, they hunted me down. They locked onto me like a heat-seeking missile. And they found me. And you know, see what I'm saying? All we have to do is set what is healthy and what, is, what we're supposed to live and do aside for just a slight. It only takes a day or two to undo a habit and to undo what we know we should do. And, and I believe this is doubly true when it comes to like money and stuff because this, this is what makes our world go round. 
economies and money and dollars and debts and all these things. We got, we got an entire, we got the Fox Business Network. It's all about money. That's all you turn on and that's all they're talking about all the time. Money and investments and they got pundits and smart people and they're dropping, I don't know what they're talking about half the time. You know, I'm sitting there, mm-hmm, yeah, I don't, these little ticker tape things going on the screen. Do y'all, I don't know what that stuff is. I don't know what any of those things are. All I know is whether I have some money or if I don't. You know what I mean? It's kind of cut and dry. But we need to look at God's way of looking at this very practical but very spiritual matter that touches every believer's life. We're going to go to the Scriptures. Something that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 10. It's a pretty lengthy passage. We're going all the way down through verse 19. But this is going to guide our discussions today. It's a powerful passage. Starting in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of greed for I've learned to be content whatever, in whatever circumstances I find myself. I, I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret to being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that's increasing in your account. But I've received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having been having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll explore. Father, today we launch out into a into a brief life study of your economy. And, and I know that these are lessons that we've all heard, we've all learned before, and yet it seems these are those lessons that we are so prone to forgetting throughout the course of our journey of faith. And we, we forget, I think, because the lure of this world is so strong. Our, our culture imparts unto us a, a spirit of greed and every moment of every day we are bombarded with these messages that promote within us selfishness, that promote materialism. God, we need your guidance. We need the power of the Word of God to overcome this, this wave, this, this tsunami of lies from the world that inundates us every single day. And so I pray, as the pastor of Crossroads Fellowship, that you will give us this day, Lord, ears to hear, hearts to process your message, minds to remember, and give all of us the will to obey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, in the passage that we just read, it's kind of in the final section of of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And it's right here at this point where he begins to take up 
this issue of, of money and finances. And, and it's pretty clear that the church has supported Paul very generously with an offering in his time of need. And they did so willingly. They didn't have to be compelled to do it. But, but throughout this whole section of this letter, what we just read, it was precipitated by the generosity of a group of people by the generosity of a church. Paul used their actions, what they did as a congregation, to teach them some spiritual truth. He used their own example of what they had done to encourage them in the truth of the Word of God. And so as we look, as we examine a little bit more deeply Paul's comments to this very giving, very generous local church, I want us to seek out and discern, first off, just some avenues of investment in God's economy. Because when we talk about, you know, we're going to use economic language. Paul used it. If you could see this in the Greek, he is using the language of finance and economy. He, he's literally using financial words all throughout his speech. And so I want us to look at, at you know, when we give, when we give in whatever avenue that we give, we have to look at it as an investment. See, the problem comes when we look at it as, as just you know, handing over something that we just know we've got to have. That's, that's not an investment. That's a surrender. You know, that, that's, a, that's a cast off. We have to look at it as investing in something eternal. So what are these avenues of investment? Well, let's break them down quickly. This won't take long at all. I want you to just jot a few things down. You know these already, but I want you to get them down on your paper so you can take it home with you. The first one being, I've got the word the. What do you think comes after the word the when we're talking about stewardship and giving? What do you think? Boy, we really need to do this. The tithe. Oh, no. Jeff said it. It's the T word. The T word in church. It's the tithe. The principle. You might not be familiar with it. I don't know. The principle of the tithe is a universal construct of biblical giving. It's actually an agricultural principle. That's where it came from. It's based upon the premise that you can't eat everything that you produce or you won't be able to produce anything next year. You can't eat all of your grain. You have to keep a certain amount of grain for seed in order to plant a crop the following year. You can't con but we, we're in a consumer society, right? If we get it, we consume it. We get a little money in our pockets, it burns us like we've got to get rid of it. You know, and we just go through things, and we go through money in our culture. In the end, we're left wondering, where did it all go, and what do I have to show for it? So it's that principle. You know, a person in biblical times who raised livestock, they couldn't slaughter and eat all their livestock because what's going to produce their, their new babies for livestock the next year? So you had to keep a certain amount in reserve as an investment for the future. That's the principle of the tithe. The tithe, in a biblical definition, is giving 10% of one's intake, one's income. And it's uh, the tithe. I always I had an old preacher used to say the tithe is the 10% reminder that 100% belongs to God. This is a biblical principle. You can't get away from it. Can't get away from it. It goes all the way back in the ancient parts of the Old Testament and it goes all the way through the teachings of Jesus on giving, the tithe. So 100% of everything belongs. The, the sooner we understand that it's not ours, it's all God's, that's, that changes our view of stewardship. Now, the second avenue of investment, I like to call offerings. We hear that word. We hear those two words thrown together all the time in church life, don't we? Tithes and offerings. 
We've got tithes and offerings. We're collecting tithes and offerings. Now, an offering, you've got to understand, is different. Uh, an offering is above and beyond. It's responding to a need. An, an offering, you know, I want you to think of, you know, biblically speaking, the tithe is like a, a, a baseline, and an offering is anything, anything else that you give in order to reach out, in order you see a need, you see something that touches your heart, and you invest in that thing as an offering. And so that, that's a biblical principle. Uh, another avenue of investment that you might not have thought about before, but, but is missions. You know, when we invest in someone in our church to go on a mission trip, we're investing in the work itself, but we're also investing in, in our realm in the spiritual life of the one that's being sent, right? Because I know that's one of the biggest struggles in missiology today is, you know, there are people that hate short-term mission trips. They think it's a bad investment that we need to be investing in the people that are on the field that are going to live there and stay there because nothing gets done on those mission trips. But I tell them what happens on those mission trips is the people who go get changed. And their hearts get awakened to the mission field. And they become better participants. And they become more better givers to the work. And if you don't see that, then I think probably people in missions that don't see that need to get another line of work. Because we invest. We invest in our own to go. We invest in Edmine, our Tata, our friend in Peru, with a full-time salary as a missionary to his people every month. And we don't know what that means, investing that money, and we don't. We give it in faith. But what we do get all the time are pictures of all the things they're doing and all the proclaimers they're handing out, the scriptures they're going, and the people they're baptizing. And every now and then we've got a new church here, a new church there, new, you know, 80, 90, maybe 100 new churches by now. And that's a great investment on the mission field. Amen? So missions. And then there are other ministries. You know, sometimes we, we invest, we give in, in different kind of ministries, parachurch ministries beyond the local church. And, those, and many of them are great causes. You need to investigate. You've got to be wise where you invest because some of those aren't wise investments. I, I'm just, you know, it's bad to say, but there are people out there who will take advantage of the generosity of the people of God and will steal from the people of God. And, pardon? They will. They'll fleece, they'll, they'll fleece the sheep. And, and you've got to be judicious. And, and you can't just always say, well, I'm just going to give it faith and trust that they do the right thing with it. You've got, you got to be wiser than that. You, you need to carefully consider where you're making that investment. So you, got all, you have the tithe, offerings, missions, ministries. You know, bottom line is this. God's economy, our, our giving, it, it's, it's all about investment. And here's the thing. You are investing in something. You are investing your life. You're investing your finances in something. Sadly, in the culture, in the world in which we live today, it seems that what we're investing in the most is ourselves and our needs. And not just our needs, but we're investing in our wants and in our desires. And the human heart always wants more. The human heart always desires more. Somewhere along this journey of life, we all have come, we, we all, we, we, we have to or we have come to a crossroads where we've got to make a choice. We either invest in the things of God or we invest 
in self. We either invest in sending a brother to the mission field or we invest in that new shiny thing for ourselves. We invest in a ministry in order to meet a need or we invest in that pretty new outfit to cover up self. And following the the never-ending, concentrated training of our materialistic culture, invariably, even the people of God are choosing self. But my friends, church, God's economy is radically different from our economy. God's economy was demonstrated most vividly and in the person and in the life and in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I want you to think about that thing. Jesus selflessly laid down his life to pay a sin debt that was not his own. He paid a sin debt that was yours. He paid a debt that that wasn't his to pay. And yet he chose and freely gave in order to pay that debt. We have so many life lessons that we need to learn. We must learn and consider with regard to the investment principles in God's economy. I want us to look at some of the principles that Paul, you might not have caught them, but Paul drew out, he used this language throughout this passage, some of the fundamentals of God's economy. You hear this, if you ever watch, I try to watch those business channel things because I want to I be smart about stuff. You know, I want to do things right. You know, I want to be wise with the things that I do. And I watch them and listen, and Kim will catch me watching sometimes, and I'm, I'm pretending like I know what they're saying, but I don't know what they're talking about most of the time. Guys, I got in, I was on a conference call in this committee thing I'm on in Sons of the American Revolution last night. I'm on a committee. And if you know me at all, you know, first off, problem is I hate committees. You know, I, I, but they had a conference call and they were talking about stuff and I'm just walking around with the thing on speakerphone and Kim's looking at me like, what are they talking about? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and we're that way about money. We're that way about money. We, we, a lot of times we, we, we just we don't know. We don't know. We don't understand. But they'll talk about on these, on these TV networks about financial stuff. They'll talk about the, fundament, the fundamentals of our economy are good. The fundamentals are there. The fundamentals are good. And they use that word over and over again, fundamentals. I want us to consider some of the fundamentals of God's economy. Paul breaks them down in this passage. Here's number one. Number one fundamental, this is where we launch, this is where we begin. Please write this down. Investment in God's economy begins with understanding the needs around us. Does that make sense? Investment in God's economy requires, it begins with this understanding of the needs around us. Look at verse 10. We're going to look at some of these verses again. Verse 10, he says, I rejoiced. In the Lord greatly, once again, because you renewed your care for me, you were in fact concerned. That's the key word. You were concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. You know, in this verse, Paul was commending this church for remembering him and his, because he was in a really bad place right here. He was in a desperate time of need. And they had, they had sent him this generous offering, I mean, just that he did not expect and it just showed up, and it was such a cause for rejoicing. And from the context, it seems they, had, they wanted to help him before, but, but they weren't in a place to do it. They couldn't do it. But then all of a sudden, they had this opportunity, and they saw this need, and they responded to it. Now, here's the thing. Did Paul always take money that was offered to him? Do you think? Yes or no? He didn't. 
In fact, there, there was one moment in particular, it's in 1 Corinthians 9, and I'm not going to put it on the screen for you, but I'm going to explain to you. Paul rejected an offering. He rejected a gift of money because he didn't want people to be confused to think that he was preaching the gospel in order to line his pockets. He didn't want people to think that he was just preaching to, to get stuff. But in this case, Paul's in a place where he, he's, he's desperate, he's in need, and then this blessing arrives in the form of a gift from a very giving church in this moment of his most desperate need. And he was grateful, and he was thankful, and he's praising the Lord, and he writes these folks a letter to encourage his church. And in the midst of it, he thanks them for seeing where he was and, and actually just stepping up and doing something about it. Church, we can learn such a valuable lesson from these Christians at that early church in Philippi. I mean, they, they saw a real need and they attacked it. They saw it and they took the steps necessary to meet the need. And that's a pattern that we need to follow in church life. You know, here's the thing about church life. If you're around corporate church much at all, you probably notice a lot of things, and I don't know what your experience in church might have been, but sometimes churches have lots of committees, and churches have lots of meetings, and they have lots of planning, and churches have conferences and confabs and all these things where they get together and talk about strategies for this and strategies for that, and sometimes the church has to stop meeting and just step up and meet the need. You know, it's not rocket science. We don't need advanced degrees. We don't need advanced theories to just be the church and to give and be generous and meet needs. So that's one fundamental in God's economy. A second one is this. Write it down. Investors in God's economy practice, and this is going to upset some of you, this is going to hurt. Practice patience and contentment. And that patience word might sting a little bit. I don't know. But investors in God's economy practice patience and contentment. Y'all remember, this is, a famous, this is a famous verse from Paul. Two verses, 11 and 12. He said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret. It's the secret. You want to know there is a Bible secret? The secret to being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Of course, Paul's talking about this act of giving from the Philippian church. He wanted to make sure that they knew beyond doubt that they didn't just give for, for his own contentment. Because he, he, he knew in his heart, whether he got the offering or not, he's going to be all right. Right? I mean... He'd learn how to be content whether he had plenty or whether he had not much at all. He learned to be content no matter the circumstances. And we've studied Paul's life. We know the trials and the calamities of his life. He suffered persecution and beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and being thrown in jail and being thrown out of towns. I mean, Paul had been there, done that. He had a closet full of the suffering T-shirts. But he had this amazing, indescribable spiritual equilibrium. He was just as unaffected by poverty as he was by riches. You might want to change those. He was just as unaffected by riches, plenty, as he was by poverty. He, he just learned how to be satisfied. He had an outlook on life that showed that he was walking, that he was living in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And, 
And unlike so many of the false teachers of his day, there were false teachers that were out there after stuff. They were fleecing the sheep. They wanted to get money. They wanted to get things, and he wanted to distance himself from that. He wanted to show that there was a difference between him and such people. Now, I want you to think, this is where it gets personal, church. I want you to think for just a moment. Who do you more closely resemble in your everyday life? Can you look at yourself and see in yourself some of the elements like that spiritually balanced, head-on straight Apostle Paul? Or might you be more similar similar to, more like those wealth-obsessed false teachers that seem to kind of fill the pulpits and churches here in the West because uh, that's just a phenomenon we deal with today. I pray that we might all become sound investors in God's economy. If we can only, here's, it's just a key. And y'all know I'm, I'm telling my age, but the older I get, the more I look back on my nothing days with great fondness, my childhood, when we didn't have meat unless we shot it. You know, we made rabbit and squirrel stew. That's what got us through the winter when I was growing up. My daddy grew an acre and a half garden. I got sick of tomatoes. I got sick of okra. I got sick of potatoes. You know? But I like to eat. And we made do. We had beans. You know what I mean? And I look back on all that and think about, you know, my dad probably never earned over $20,000 a year a day in his life. And I look back, and I never wanted for stuff. I never wanted for anything. I had them tough skins jeans with the little patches that you, you know, when you wore a hole in them, mama ironed on one of those patches on the legs, and you made do, you know. Y'all ever have, your mamas ever have your britches where she bought them too long, and then every year they let them out, and you had those little marks on the bottoms where they kept getting let out every year. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Can I get a witness? Lance, you know what I'm talking about. You know, when we look back and look where we are today, if something breaks, we don't fix it. We throw it away, and we go on Amazon, and we order a new one. We don't, we don't you know, we don't suffer need or want because we're, we're living in a different, mentally, spiritually, we're existing in a different realm, a different economy. We've got to learn how to be, you know, contentment is something that's taught and learned. You just don't stumble into it. It's a learned place of life, a learned state of being, and it's one that we need to master. Another fundamental of God's economy, number three, it's a big one. Investors in God's economy must learn to be God-reliant instead of self-reliant. Ooh, it's going to hurt. Now, there's a verse here, verse 13, I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. This little beautiful verse is perhaps one of the most misquoted verses in all of scripture. There are people who will lift that verse out of context and claim superhuman powers, right? Able to leap tall buildings. Like, you know, I can, you know, I can swim the English channel because I can do all things in Jesus name. You know, I drown hundred feet out. I'm drowning. I cannot do things that I cannot do just because I slapped Jesus name on it. You got to look at this in the context. That's not what this claim is. This passage is about the meeting of our physical and spiritual needs. So the rule of context means that we've got to apply this verse within its context, and the context is economy and need. It's about God's economy, and that changes everything about how we have to interpret that scripture. In a day of economic upheaval, 
And in a time when Paul didn't know whether he's going to have enough money to pay the bills or not, to just get by day by day, Paul stood up and said, not a problem, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul had learned contentment in times of plenty. He'd learned contentment in times of need. And when all was said and done, he had learned to trust Jesus instead of himself, no matter what his circumstances were. That's a lesson we all need to learn, isn't it? You know, most often, here's how we examine our finances. You know, when we're looking at a financial decision, here's how we examine it. We, we think things like, well, I think we can make the payment on that. Don't we? Or we go, well, I can put that on the credit card. Or if we have trouble making the payment, we can always take out a loan or credit against the house because we've got some equity in the house. And these are the kind of things we go through. Why is it that we would rather go to the bank? Why is it we'd rather go to a credit card company or even to a friend to get a loan to seek the financial peace of our families when all along we have the opportunity to approach the Prince of Peace and invest in the things of God and allow Him to have control of that realm of our lives, our finances? Meeting our needs. This verse, you'll notice, does not say, I can pay all my bills on my credit card because that gives me strength. It doesn't say, I know I can make the payments and this new car will make me very happy, so that gives me strength. No, Paul declared in total confidence, I can do all things financially, endure all things economically through him who gives me strength. And and now, now it gets personal because there's a, there, this is where, this is truly, you know, this is where it hurts. This is truly where, where the tithe, where the giving looms large in the life of a believer because there's no greater, no more faithful step toward God reliance in our own personal finances than the giving of the tithe. There's no, there's no greater step toward faith than the giving of the tithe. But do you want to learn an incredible lesson in faith. Do you want to learn how to be completely God-reliant instead of self-reliant in your finances? Then if you do, if you want to learn that total God-reliance, and at the beginning of your week or the beginning of your month, you, you give God a tenth of whatever you have, and that'll teach you how to rely on Him real fast because you're not relying on yourself anymore. You're relying on Him to meet those needs. A fourth fundamental of God's economy is that investors in that economy have to be generous. That's a big word, generous. Paul called this church out, said, you, you're doing well partnering with me in my, in my hardship. And, and you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. And he says, when even in Thessalonica, you sent me gifts several times, multiple times. This was a generous body. It was a generous church. Christian Standard Bible says here, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. It's a little bit of an understatement. The word partnering, I want you to have the image of two individuals walking together. It means they're, they're together, they're in step with one another, and they're going in the same direction. Isn't that a good picture? I mean, they're like arm in arm, headed in the same direction. That's the kind of partner. It's not a long-distance partnering. It's an intimate partnering of being together, moving forward in that same direction. And this passage gives us a glimpse of the reach, of the scope, 
of our Christian giving. It goes far beyond self. It reaches out into all the world. And so we are called to be generous in giving. You know, the generosity of that little Philippian church, it made a huge difference. In Paul's life, it made a huge difference in his ministry. And there are these times when no other church lifted a finger to help him. They came through, and they came through over and over again. Christians, listen, you've got to understand that your generosity is called upon, is needed in God's economy and God's work. And the thing is, no one should be required to compel you to give to the needs of God. No one should be required to parade before you these heartbreaking images and heartbreaking things, you know, like those little, you know, those dog commercials on TV? You know what I'm talking about? When it has the dog sitting in the cage and the dog's like crying, and they want you to send money to the, to the, the lost dog things, you know. And churches sometimes do that. They, they, will put, they will put the most heartbreaking things on display in order to manipulate you into, into reaching that. And that's not how it should be in the body of Christ. We don't need that kind of compulsion, that kind of moving in order to respond. We have to respond because we're already participants. It's like that church in Philippi. We're already there. We're already walking in step with Christ, and we want to participate in what He's doing. Nobody should make us participate in what He has going on. Fifth principle, fifth fundamental. Investors in God's economy have to understand that in meeting the needs of others, their own needs are going to be met. Am I right? In meeting the needs of others, your needs will be met. Verses 17 and 18, Paul said, Not that I seek the gift, but I underline part here. That's not inspired underlining, that's Jeff underlining. I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. And then later on, he talks about A fragrant offering. You see that? An acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Again, this passage right here, these verses are full of financial language. Paul, you know, Paul had been a businessman. Paul had run tent-making businesses before. He he knew about finances. He knew about the science of investment and, and finances. And in verse 17, he wanted these people to understand that their gifts were an investment in God's work through his future through his ministry and what they were giving was being credited to their eternal account now i don't know how that works but that's that's what he's saying here then in verse 18 he uses the language of sacrifice did you see that it talks about a a a fragrant offering and that's folks that's straight out of the old testament that's straight out of the old testament offerings at the altar of god in the temple of god about giving an offering a fragrant offering lifted up to, to the no, to the to the nostrils of God. And what were they offering at that place, by the way? What they call that when they offered their offering at the temple? What was it called? A what? A sacrifice. That's a key word. Sacrifice. In the Old Testament, people brought their offerings to the Lord and they brought the best. They brought their finest bull or ram without a single blemish on its body. They brought him the first fruits of their crops. That was the finest produce from their farms. God did not get the leftovers. God didn't get the old three-legged heifer that was left out there in the field after all the good cows got sold to pay the mortgage on the farm. God didn't get the leftovers. 
God got the best. God got it first, and it hurt. It hurt the bottom line of the giver. It was difficult because it was a sacrifice. That's what that word sacrifice means. Y'all know, y'all know that sacrifice is supposed to hurt a little? Because it costs. That's the principle of the sacrifice. That's the principle of sacrificial giving. Now, let me ask you. I want to challenge you, Christian. You got to think. I don't know how to answer your question because I don't know about you. But how sacrificial is your giving? How sacrificial is it? Any offering to God must be a sacrifice or it loses its meaning. It's incomplete in its meaning. Are are you giving in the way that is a sacrifice? Does it hurt? Does giving to the Lord, to the missions, to the ministry, the tithe, the offerings, do, do they actually, do those gifts make you actually sit down and make some hard decisions about some things that you can and cannot have? Maybe even trim some things from your family budget in order to give a sacrifice unto the work of God. Because if it's not a sacrifice, this is scary, but if it's not a sacrifice, it's, it, it's not biblical giving. It's not biblical if it is not a sacrifice. That is the system of God's economy. My fear is that the vast majority of God's people are entirely too busy buying their own stuff first and going into decades of endless debt that they have neither the money nor the inclination to participate in God's economy on His terms. We want to do it on our own terms because, you know, we're special. We're different. That's fine for other people, but, you know... God, I got special needs, you know. No, no, you don't. We're all brothers and sisters in this same family. And we all got to be striving to reach, to reach high, that bar that's high that God has placed for us in this realm of our lives. And finally, Paul, he finishes his note to the Philippian church with, with a powerful claim. He teaches number six. Please write it down. God actually promises a return on your kingdom investments. He promises to meet all your needs. This is where Paul declares with absolute confidence, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. My friends, if we are generous to invest in the work of the Lord, if you are generous and biblical and sacrificial in your giving, you will experience on a personal level just how capable God is of seeing that your actual needs in this life are met. And always, 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 God's provision, far out, out, it outpaces, it exceeds any needs that we might have. You hear me? Whatever your greatest need is, God is more than an abundance to meet that need. There was once a missionary in the far reaches of Africa. He had evangelized an unreached people group, a tribe there, and actually succeeded in planting a church in this tiny village. I mean, he took the gospel there, and the people responded, and they responded quickly. 
and, and the church grew, and, and the, the faith, the gospel was overtaking the pagan religion of the people. It was just amazing, the transformation. And it wasn't long before the missionary was able to go deep with those people of God. He went deep into theology and discipleship matters and discipline matters and, and Christian living. And one concept that he shared with that church was the concept of the tithe and that biblical challenge to give a tithe, one-tenth unto the work of the Lord. Well, needless to say, the people of this remote village have never heard of such a notion. And, and it wasn't just a, a foreign concept to them. I mean, it was a strange concept because they actually considered themselves a very generous people. They always helped one another in times of need. They were a very community-oriented village. But the notion of giving just one-tenth of your increase, however that might be, whatever it might be, I mean, that was a challenge to say the least. I mean, it caused an upheaval in the church and, and, and there was some anger amongst some of the newer folk and the missionary was afraid that perhaps he had gone entirely too far, entirely too deep, entirely too quickly. Then one afternoon he received a knock on the door of his hut. And answering the door he found a familiar native boy little boy from his church, from the village, holding an exceptionally large fish in his hands. And he looked at him and says, what is this? And the boy said, Reverend, you have taught us what tithing is, and so here I have brought you my tithe. And this boy grinned, this huge toothy grin, his just brilliant white teeth just contrast against that, that deep, rich, dark skin. And he was just so proud, and he was just beaming with a smile. And the missionary grinned at him and gratefully took the fish, but as he glanced outside the door, he didn't see any other fish. There was no basket of fish. And a lot of times the boys would carry stringers of fish or on, even on a, a limb from a tree, and he didn't see any fish anywhere nearby. And he says, well, I, I don't understand. If this is your tithe, then where, where, are your other, where are your other nine fish? And the boy's smile got even bigger, and he said, oh, they're still back in the river. I'm going to go catch them now. And then he turned and ran back down to the riverbank. Folks, that's a beautiful picture of God's economy. When we understand that God owns everything, and, when we, and when, we re, when we understand that, it just releases our generosity. It releases our faith so that giving doesn't become drudgery. Giving isn't like holding on and having God, having to wrestle it out of our hands. It becomes an act of worship. And it becomes a, a, a sacrifice that is a fragrant offering unto the Lord. I challenge you today to ignore the economic wisdom and lessons of the world around you because the economy of our world is in a shambles. You hear me? Our nation is $21 trillion in debt. I want you to see that number. Here's the number. That's 21 million millions. That's the debt that is outstanding. And, and, and the debt that's on all, you know, I know a lot of us, a lot of you folks maybe have Social Security, Medicare. That, that, that casts that into four or five times that amount in the liabilities that our government owes to people and the promises that have been made over the past 70, 80, 90 years. 
We're $21 trillion in debt as a nation. Europe, if you haven't been watching lately, is on the edge of just economic collapse and just splitting up into pieces. You know, I think we all need to turn off our TVs and quit listening to the business channels and the business experts and start listening to God's economy. If everybody got back to the principles of God's economy, can you imagine how different our spirits would be? How we looked at things and stuff in the realm of eternity. You know, we need to be different. We got, we're called to be different. And again, you, you better hear my heart. I'm, just talk, I'm not talking about being six or $7,000 short on budget. God's got all the money. We can cut stuff or whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about us spiritually as the people of God, where we are in obedience to the people of God, in our giving, in our sacrifice, whether or not he is first or whether or not he is last. I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this. You're going to be one of two things. Either God is going to be the God of your money and your finances, or your money and finances are going to be your God. There's kind of no middle ground. It's one or the other. In church, that's a choice that we, we're going to have to make, that you're going to have to make. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for reminding us once again that you own it all. You possess everything around us, and that includes us. And I, I pray you would help us to be a people who would see beyond self and be, be led to meet the needs that surround us. Teach us that the only true way to fulfillment and completeness in this life is through sacrifice, through giving, through service to you, through service to our fellow man. And thank you for reminding us just one more time that there's no way we could ever outgive you. You are a generous God. You supply every one of our needs. Lead us in turn to be a generous people, broken by and responsive to the needs in this broken world around us. Help us to see as your children with absolute clarity that the only way, the only way that we'll truly get control of our personal finances is by adopting and pursuing and investing in your economy according to your principles and your ways. Not by the wisdom of man, but by the power and the guidance and the absolute clarity of the word of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Very much a discipling message today. Very much designed for the church. But I understand you might have, you might have, you're thinking, whoa, I thought we were here to talk about Jesus stuff. I didn't know that we, we got into this kind of thing. But, you know, the Bible cover touches every area of life. That's why we're here. But my, you may not know. You might not have a relationship with God. You might not know exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about having a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. Although we did talk about His sacrifice today, right? A total selfless sacrifice. Well, that was done on your behalf, and I would love to talk to you about it. If you look on the back of that welcome card, it's in your worship guide. It says, my decision today, if you have any, whatever spiritual questions you have, whatever, whatever you know, answers you need in some area of your life, maybe, um, however we might be able to help you, write, write a note on that card. 
and we're going to collect those. And that's just Landry. He's talking to us. He's telling me to hurry up, isn't he, Kevin? Is that what he's doing? So we'll collect those in just a moment. You probably see I got a section called Keeping It Real. You see the section Keeping It Real? This is kind of our life application part today because it's been pretty real so far, right? I can tell from your glazed over stairs and, and, you know, the anger and confusion that I see in some of your eyes. You know, anytime we address, because it's like, this is so personal, Jeff. Yeah, it is personal. That's why God talks about it so much. And so, again, it's just a reminder for us. But let's, let's keep it real. Write these things down quickly. Number one, you will not recognize the needs of others and be moved to give generously as long as, write it down, your financial focus is upon yourself. I know that seems kind of long, but you only got two little blanks there. But you're not going to be motivated. Your eyes aren't going to even be open to the needs in this world as long as you're self-absorbed. Parents, can't we, don't we know that this is a true principle? Where anyone is self-absorbed, they don't have a clue about how things they do hurt people or whatever is going on in other people. As long as we're self-absorbed, we're not going to be open to the needs of the world around us. This is, just, this is wisdom. Number two, that biggest step, the biggest step, I'll say it again, the biggest step toward relying upon God instead of yourself and your finances is the giving of the tithe. That's the biggest step. And it's a huge step. It's a monumental step for some. And it's not really something that God calls us to aspire to and to reach when we're mature someday. It's, it's, it's kind of like a baby step. That we're supposed to nail and, and be confident in and, and then build on from that. So we kind of got it in the wrong place in our American church economy. And then lastly, I already said it, but it's just a better rephrasing. Number three, money. Your money will either be one of two things in your life. You'll be using it to worship God or it's going to be your God. You're either going to worship God with it or it's going to be your God. And I'm talking about your little G God. Not the big G God, but a little G God. And we surround ourselves with little gods. We don't realize it sometimes, but we do. Anything that we elevate to the realm of importance above and beyond who Christ is in our lives, it becomes a God in our lives. And money is the biggest replacement for God in the lives of most Americans. It's the thing that people worship Above the Lord so much more often. And I think you'll probably agree with me on that. Because that's kind of who we are as a people. But that is just, that's the hurtful stuff. That is keeping it real. So this is where we're going. A couple more weeks. We're going to review a couple more things. I know this is really kind of broad based today. Because Paul, in writing to this church, he covered a lot of ground. But I wanted to, I wanted to share that, that array of principles. And then we're going to build on some other things over the next two Sundays. So.